right, welcome back listeners and viewers. Uh, tonight, uh, I know it has been a long break from my side for podcasting, but uh, there has been a lot of work in the events. And tonight I actually have uh, a special guest with us that uh, we have been trying to work uh, a collaboration for quite a while now, and we're finally here. Uh, we have Trey with us. And uh, Trey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming along. Uh, for the benefit of the audience, would you like to just give us your sort of your formal introduction? For sure. Well, thanks. First of all, thanks for having me on. Um, I've watched a few of your podcasts and I'm a big fan of the discussions and your style of interviewing. So I thought, yeah, uh, I'm more than happy to uh, come on and uh, have a chat with you about Nietzsche and the death of God. Uh, so for me, just a brief introduction. I'm a, a philosophy YouTuber and I'm also an Eastern Orthodox Christian. So basically my love of philosophy and of theology sort of combines in my videos. So that's what uh, sort of the style of videos that I make. And the people that I'm most interested in are uh, people like Hegel, Zizek, the church fathers, like St. Augustine, theologians. Mm -hmm. So I'm really interested in a diverse um, uh, like amount of topics and people. But um, actually I got into philosophy originally from Nietzsche. And so I've read most of Nietzsche's uh, published works and uh, I've done some writing on him as well, and I've also done some writing specifically on the death of God. So, all right, that's really interesting because I don't know what is it about Nietzsche, but that's like everybody's first philosopher, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah. the philosopher overlord of sixteen-year-olds. Because I got into philosophy, uh, one of the first works that I ever read was *Beyond Good and Evil* by Nietzsche, and I'm actually currently writing a commentary on that. So that that's one loaded book, right? So I think that's really interesting. And the second thing you mentioned, which when I was browsing through your content, that one of the reasons I got so interested in, because like you mentioned, uh, you are an, a Christian, right? And that's something we see nowadays, rarely within the philosophical literary world. It's, it's just that, and it's sad that uh, religion and philosophy have diverged their ways so much. And uh, so that's really interesting to see that because myself, I'm, I'm, I'm Muslim and I work around the framework of Islamic philosophy. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to discuss specifically the topic about Nietzsche's death of God, because we know that it has impacted the Western world or the secular world in, in you know, in a great magnitude. And so it's always interesting to see what is religion's take on that. Right. And so that's why that's why the topic we chose is Nietzsche's uh, death of God. Now, even though I started with Nietzsche, but I very quickly, uh, because I, I I belong to a uh, sort of a religious community, I was studying under a religious institute, and we have a taboo about Nietzsche because of how, uh, <laughs> I think you know where I'm coming from, right? Because yeah. it's it's very it's very blunt when you read Nietzsche, and it gets a little bit you know risky if you do not have a supervision. So I didn't have supervision at that time. So I was like, okay, I'm, I'm gonna pause this. But now that I'm coming back to it, I think it would be interesting to listen your understanding of Nietzsche and the concept of death of God. I think firstly, uh, just from the perspective, of, because obviously we can do a comparative study about other mm -hmm. philosophers' take on that. But just from within Nietzsche's literary works. What do you what would you say that Nietzsche's understanding or concept of death of God is? Right. Um, so this is actually a big question and it's debated by scholars. So I don't want to uh, present myself as if I have a definitive answer on what Nietzsche actually mm. believes, because he actually has very many ambiguous statements. Actually, I have one of my first videos is on Maurice Blanchot's art, uh, essay on the death of God. And he points out how you can find statements of Nietzsche talking about his fundamental beliefs, like on power and on the death of God and mm. on morality. And he'll contradict himself, maybe not in the same book, but in his lifetime, in his published works, you will be able to find um, Nietzsche contradicting himself on almost everything. Mm -hmm. um, but that would be um, as the only thing that's really the exception is his dislike of Christianity. As soon as he really matured as a philosopher and became his own, he, um, he knew that he stood opposed to Christianity. So I think the death of God for Nietzsche really is not there's many different ways you can interpret it, as you mentioned, like in a comparative study, uh, we can look at Hegel, we can look at Blanchot, we can look at these different people. But I think in terms of what Nietzsche actually believed, it's simply that we have lost um, we have lost the ground and the source in the uh, 
the first principle of all of our morality. So we've lost in terms of uh, our experience of values and our acceptance of values. Um, at one point, these values were grounded in God. They were grounded in the Christian religion. And now due to the progress of science, due to the progress of anthropology um, and philosophy itself, we've sort of realized that for Nietzsche, there is no God, but that isn't the death of God itself. Um, mm -hmm. It's not simply realizing that there is no God, it's realizing that um, God is dead so that our very source of our ground, every, every our, what we had at one point put all our hope in, that is, mm -hmm. we can no longer hope in that. So there's sort of a void, uh, a hole in reality now, and that hole is, is the abyss of nihilism, of a godless, meaningless world. Now for Nietzsche, um, he um, has the idea of the Superman who stares into the void and affirms his own life, his own his own groundlessness, his own lack of of um, dependency upon something like a god. So that's Nietzsche's. That's for me. A, maybe it's a little superficial, but I would say that that's the general project of Nietzsche. Um, the death of God occurs um, through the realization for for one um on one level that there is no god but also it's through really internalizing the emptiness that um is left in the place of god who of course is now dead. yeah i think i think the last point you mentioned is really crucial because uh like you said there's there's very little definitive um concept from Nietzsche saying that look God is dead it's not very definitive as people you know proclaim but I think what's what we can agree on is that when Nietzsche talks about death of God it is less about the death of a anthropomorphic or a figurative being right that's you mm -hmm. know that's because that's mm -hmm. that's one of the things that you know religious people read death of God and that's what they associate with that it's the death of a non-material being called god and that's why they say it's mm -hmm. blasphemous but i think th that's not what nietzsche's main point is he might as well believe in that we never know but that's not what he's focusing on that he's focusing on the death of values like you talked about that when we when we sort of lose our values and mor moral values then it comes as a result that I mean, if, if we try to visualize it, it's like death, God is a source of morality, right? So when when that bridge between source of morality and morality is broken, that you are no longer yep. taking your morality from that source, then that's what it means that God is dead for him, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, I think you're right. And um, even Nietzsche himself says in the parable of the madman, the famous parable of the madman, where the madman goes to the marketplace and proclaims that God is dead, yeah the people in the marketplace the the those in the marketplace they don't believe in god that's the yeah. interesting thing they already know that in a sense that there is no god but what they don't know is that god is dead so in a way these people at the marketplace are like um to use a an example that zizek uh Slavoj zizek often uses they're like um the cat in a cartoon or like wiley coyote in the cartoon who runs off the cliff mm -hmm. and they're suspended in midair but they only fall once you look down and realize yeah, there's nothing yeah. beneath you, right? <laughs> so I think, yeah. yeah, so I think that the the madman has sort of gone mad because he's looked down into the abyss mm, and he's seen mm. that God is dead. But those at the marketplace, even though that, even though there is no God beneath them, they've yet to, they've yet to stare into the abyss and realize the tr emptiness of the yeah. entire moral framework of values that they accept, um, had relied upon for so long and i think this is this is exactly where the moment of realization is exactly where the concept of nihilism or absurdism mm -hmm. or any philosophy along those borderlines starts and i think i would love to talk about nihilism also but uh, let's wrap up the 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 metaphor of death of god itself first mm -hmm. and that's the reason i wanted to look at the literary works itself now we know like you you you, you gave the story that nietzsche often quotes about about the guy, you know, God is dead and we have killed him, that one. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting to say, and when most of the times I'm reading commentaries on Nietzsche's work, I think some people from a linguistic point of perspective, and that's something I personally notice is that Nietzsche does not say that, you know, God is dead now. He says God has been dead for a while. And he mm -hmm. says that we have killed him. So he's, he's 
not really his focus is not even about that oh look god died it's it's more like look society this is what you did we have killed him and he remains dead so i think uh, when you expand out from that literary context it is what i realized here is that nietzsche does not introduce the concept as many as many might uh, believe that Nietzsche is the one who introduces the concept of God's death. But I think that's not very really true. So I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, I think Hegel discusses a similar idea far before Nietzsche does. And I'm, I haven't read Hegel in de detail. So do you have any insight on Hegel's perspective of death of God or morality's death? Well, I think the way that Hegel understands the death of God is more so the death of Christ himself and how Christ, well, I'm not as familiar with Hegel as well, I'll, I'll admit. I'm more familiar with Zizek's understanding of Christ, where Christ sort of is God. He is God in the flesh, but at the same time, God himself is subject to pain and to suffering. And mm -hmm. to even in the cry in the cross when G uh, Jesus says, um, my God, my God, or my father, why have you forsaken me? It's like God himself for a moment becomes an atheist. And mm -hmm. for Zizek, this oh. moment, this, this is a big I, idea I because, right, it's like the substantial order itself is fractured, inconsistent, mm -hmm. and subjectivized. Mm -hmm. So like when Hegel famously in the preface to the phenomenology, he says that substance, uh, he says the entire truth of his system can be grasped upon um, understanding substance as subject. So if we have the substance of God, mm -hmm. who is beyond contradiction, beyond antagonism, then we have Christ, who is also God, but yet he is a subject, yet he is um, mm -hmm. particular, finite, um, doubting, subject to pain and suffering. So I think for Hegel, or at least for Zizek, the death of God is occurred on the cross. And then throughout history, we're sort of um, coming to the realization of what the crucifixion truly means. For, for Zizek, the truth of the cru crucifixion is that even if God is out there, we can't rely rely upon him because no one, there's no trans, there's no other out there who we could have faith in because even God himself doesn't have faith in himself. So that is Zizek's understanding of the death of God. And I think it's how would you say how would you say that does not uh, compare or go along the lines of say nihilism or absurdism more accurately? Mm. Would you say that uh, Zizek's philosophy kind of aligns with that absurdism? Um. I'm not so sure if I would say absurdism, but maybe a sort of nihilism. And the reason why is, be, I don't think Zizek would ever call himself a nihilist, but in a way, when he's talking about the death of God, Zizek does affirm that there is an emptiness to reality. There is a meaninglessness. Mm -hmm. There is no purpose inscribed in us. And if there is any purpose, we have to make it. So, of course, that's a Nietzschean idea. But um, for Zizek, sort of we need to reconcile and we need to accept our own um, antagonism, our own inconsistency, our own um, contradictoriness. That for Zizek is through reconciling with our own, to use a Hegelian term, our negativity. This is sort of how we overcome um, ideology. It's how we overcome uh, um, sort of being stuck in delusion. But at the same time, um, I don't think it provides a, a way to a meaningful life. So I do think Zizek mm -hmm. is sort of stuck in nihilism. Um, I think that's really interesting that that is the foundational because often when discussing nihilistic ideas, the the concept is total denial of religion in the first place. That's the fundamental mm -hmm. idea that people yeah. introduce nihilism with. So I think it's really interesting to see uh, Zizek's idea that yeah. he, he accepts the framework that, okay, you know, that happened. And then yeah. because of the very fact that it happened, nihilism exists. And I think mm -hmm. from what I remember, this is one of the greatest uh, criticisms on Christian doctrine in that we, we study in doctrine in general about this contradiction of God dying on the or Christ dying on the cross. And uh, like the famous example that you, you mentioned, Saluni, Saluni, where that's the Hebrew, right? That that mm -hmm. uh, Christ cried on the cross, that God, God, why have you forsaken me? And some translated to be, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? So that very moment of uh, inconsistency and contradiction, I think it's really interesting because while while direct Christian criticisms, uh, even, even Islamic criticisms and others, they very clearly outline this to be a sort of inconsistency within these scriptures, which is interesting because even though 
uh, even if you might accept it, it's it's still that throughout religious doctrines, such inconsistencies exist. And I mm -hmm. think because we have segued into this topic of religion from, from Islamic doctrines point of view, one of the greatest sort of um, this, this idea of contradiction within the, the logic of existence that we discuss is what we call the concept of duality or in Arabic we call it Wahdat al-Wajud which talks about the unity of existence being a being the, the entire existence in unity is a sort of a shred of God himself right because mm. at the end of the day God is the one who manifested that entire existence so anything mm -hmm. that happens within that existence even if it contradicts at the end of the day it's uh, it's a compartment it's a reflection of God himself. So I think mm. that's really interesting to see that when nihilists or absurdists talk about this contradiction, what they sort of try to understand, try to look for or try to grasp at straws is that, okay, if this contradiction is eliminated, then the framework of religion makes sense. I think that's their mm. core idea. But I think it's really, it's really interesting to see that at any scale you go, even if you zoom out, and you say, okay, crucifixion, maybe not. You say, okay, uh, the, the existence of uh, humans, you know, evolution theory and everything, mm. you say, maybe not. But even if you keep on zooming out, at every scale, you find this contradiction and inconsistency within the logic of existence to the point mm. that at the end of the day, the existence itself sort of becomes illogical, you know? And I think that's mm. where the concept of nihilism and absurdism is born. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I think that the problem is sort of, well, for Zizek, he would say that we need to, instead of fighting against the contradiction, we need to embrace the contradiction and work through it. Um, Hegel has a famous phrase called carrying with the negative. So in spirit, he'll say spirit is not what um, shies away from death from negativity spirit is what looks it in the faith and uh, face and carries with it and brings it sort of into itself and it's in this way that we reconcile with uh, contradiction or with antagonism and i think for the nihilist the nihilist sort of sees this absurdity in being and they sort of throw up their hands as if we can't do anything about it and look at how absurd everything is i'm just going to um, I'm just going to retreat into my own dark corner of whatever, or it's even like, even if you want to do what Nietzsche does and say, I look nihilism in the face and I affirm myself. Mm -hmm. um, in either way, it's sort of, I think the problem is that it's seeing external antagonism, but it's not seeing inner self-contradiction because I want to think a Zarathustra who will himself be contradictory. I want to see Zarathustra who like Jesus will die on the cross and will suffer. Because I think the problem with Zarathustra is that we have this ideal for a man, like ideal Superman, who almost is beyond all negativity, beyond all self-doubt. But I don't mm. think that's very realistic. I think the Christian and the Hegelian move is to look upon, is to have this turn inward sort of, where we recognize our own contradiction and for a Christian or even a Muslim way, like framework from the way you've described it, it's seeing our own inner contradictory, in, inner uh, contradictions, seeing our own inconsistency, and in this way, almost seeing our dependency on God, and in Christianity, seeing our sin, mm -hmm. seeing how far away, twisted away we are from him. Yeah, in doctrine, I think uh, the, the point you're referring to is, is twofold. First off, in doctrine, when, when we talk about the existence of prophets or saints in general, so there is always this debate about why do they have to be human, right? And I think that one fold of that is that, like you said, that we want to see a reflection of an imperfect human being in the message of God. If the message yep. of God is so perfect that it is beyond human reach, then we will, you know, almost never relate to it, right? So that's why they say that even prophets and saints, they, you know, the, the exemplars of God, even they are supposed to be humans to sort of uh, give that idea that it, it is it is imperfect, right? But right. I think once... Right. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, you continue. I'm just agreeing with you 100%. Yeah, I think what's, what's interesting is that even though we understand that, okay, so this is the exemplar of God and this has to be imperfect for us to be able to 
see it as a followable role model, right? It's not a superhuman mm-hmm. that we cannot follow. It is it is there. But at the same time, the contradiction of man is that the, the idea that I want to follow God's message is supposed to be perfect, right? So there's this, this somewhere in between where it's like the God's message should be perfect, but God's uh, exemplar is, is mm. human, right? So how, yeah. how would you say that we can bridge that gap? Well, here's what I would say. Um, and I think this, I think you can accept a lot of this, even though you're not Christian. Um, and I'm going to try and use mostly Old Testament examples. Um, so Moses, for example, um, I think there's a good case to make that Moses was the closest person to God, except for uh, um, closest prophet to God, um, except maybe you would say Muhammad. Uh, but so we would say Moses is closer to God than any other man, um, uh, except for Christ and Mary. And uh, But we'll get to that. But um, Moses never got to see the promised land. That's something interesting. Why did the man so close to God not get to see the promised land? Well, when Moses was um, with the Israelites, he disobeyed God in a very, very minor way where um, it's something to do with the, the rod and trying to get water or something from the stone. And he smashes it in a way he wasn't supposed to. He was supposed to have trust in God that God would provide the water, but he got angry. And it's this one minor sin, this one minor thing that Moses did he wasn't allowed to enter into the promised land. That doesn't mean he went to hell. We know he. We know he's in heaven. So why why did God do this? I think it's because Moses was so close to God that he had a far higher standard that he needed to um, um, sort of submit to, because of his knowledge of God. As Jesus says, if you had if you were blind, you would have no sin. If you were not aware of the nature of goodness and evil and of evil. How could I count you guilty for your sin? You're in, you're in ignorance. You're in ignorance. But Moses was lacking all ignorance. So as you were saying, I think the point though is that rather than God needing people to be imperfect in order to communicate its message, it's that even when people are imperfect, God nonetheless finds a way to work through them, and ultimately their very act mm-hmm. of imperfection will be part of the what we would say the glorification of the world Mm -hmm. of God entering into creation. Now, the final point would be, I think that in terms of human persons, the biggest um, example of someone being perfect and yet being able to communicate to humans in a relatable way is Christ. And as an Orthodox Christian, I would also say Mary, the mother of Jesus, the mother of God, she is the human who is, we say, free from sin. We say she never committed sin. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the ideal that we're all supposed to aspire to. And it's only through the incarnation of God. It's only through being able to um, have our sins forgiven by God himself, who participated in our death and dies with us. It's only in this way that we can truly attain to the heavenly ideal and archetype, which is for us the mother of God. I think I would agree. I would agree with the part about uh, the the perfection uh, the level of perfection sort of increases as you go further mm-hmm. it's, it's some somewhere along the line so now in 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 islamic doctrine also uh, we we understand that moses was one of the uh, closest prophets uh, to to god and to the point mm-hmm. that one of the nicknames of moses in in the arabic context is friend of god or or somebody who talks mm-hmm. to god because there's uh, incidents of him talking directly to god right so i think like you mentioned that even though uh, I, I'm not sure what's the Christian divinity's take on this, but we understand the Muslim idea is that all prophets are sinless. We we agree that all prophets are, uh, you know, uh, naturally sinless. They lack the capacity to sin. That's our idea. But even then, yeah. within their within their actions, there are actions that God does not like. And even though for a commoner, those are not sins. But for a prophet's level, there's are actions that are not supposed to be done. I'm not sure if this uh, if this story uh, transpones into the Christian Bible, but there's a story in the Quran that talks about Moses meeting one of the saints of God, and then there are uh, there are minute actions that he does that you know the saint of God tells the prophet that you're not supposed to do that, right? So mm-hmm. one example that we we often give in in Islamic literature is that the whiter the cloth is, you know, the whiter your clothes are, the more easier it is for the specks to show against them, right? Mm-hmm. So as you yep. as you grow further, 
the the level the criteria against which you are judged to be perfect increase keeps on increasing right and that's the cycle of perfection now i can't help but sort of compare it to two different philosophical ideas one is plato's idea of perfectionism of the of the perfect relief where plato talks about that there is a perfect relief that exists beyond this dimension maybe in a parallel dimension if you transport it into modern language but he says mm-hmm. somewhere a perfect world exists and everything in this world is a reflection of that world and that we have to slowly start to align ourselves with that level of perfection and work towards that i think that's the first idea that i relate to on a philosophical understanding but i think the more interesting one the second idea is that uh when when we talk about ubermen or supermen uh the idea originally or originally arcs from a psychological perspective from a layman's perspective it very much goes in line with the abraham maslow's hierarchy of needs where where even though at the basic level the human needs are very limited as you grow further the the limits sort of keep on pushing themselves so i think mm-hmm. if if you try to put super, the idea of superman in this case that okay this is somebody that is even though he's perfect but he still has imperfect imperfections and how can this contradiction be i think one of the simplest uh, sort of answers is that because it's 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 an ever going process so even yeah. if he keeps on improving there will still be new challenges for him to to take on and the standard of perfection that he has to attain to keeps on increasing what do you think your take is on this or or if you are familiar with either nietzschean or hegelian take on this or even zizek's um okay well i will say that um i we don't really agree like for christians we would say that the prophets and the saints they can sin um i mean like there are prophets who did commit sin um and there may have been some that did not like there are people who say that saint john the baptist didn't commit sin there are those that say um elijah didn't so you know there's different interpretations but for us um we would just say that um like even though even though their sin is in a way lesser than those who are less purified when they do sin if they do sin like moses when um i would call it a sin when he hit the rock um it's a minor thing right but it got him barred from the promised land and i think again the reason why is because you're held to such a higher standard so it's like sin has less of, of an effect on you but as you said with that uh really good analogy uh not analogy but imagery of the white robe um able to get uh uh stained very easily so it's it's the same principle there um now in terms of plato plato's forms i would just say that for me um the problem with the platonic forms from an orthodox christian perspective and i think it even fits within the muslim framework like you were talking about how god is in a way all in all as we would say everything is already god's so i think with the problem with the forms is that um it makes too strict of a divide like for us um god is all and evil or what isn't um what isn't um part of god is nothing it's non-being so um all evil is just twisting of what is good so i think what plato misses is that there is a realm of forms we could say as the ideal perfection but that isn't a heaven it's not an archetype out there it's sort of in the mind of god and our role is to move from nothingness into being into god through a relationship with him so that's what we'd call in orthodox christian terminology ter- terminology a communion ontology so there's been many books written on this like uh john zazula's being as communion um and so lots of books on the notion of how existence itself is um constituted by the reception of your being from god and then reciprocating it back in love and i think the process of purification is attaining to your heavenly ideal through uniting yourself with god regarding the plato's idea of forms i think uh, there is interesting because to see that when like you mentioned that when plato says okay this is this world and then somewhere else and he mm-hmm. heavily implies that this is a different physical form also right that somewhere else is the world that we need to attain to and i think it's interesting that you talk about that uh, and because in, in sufi literature in islamic uh, doctrines literature they also have a similar idea that 
even if it's if it's a parallel of our own world it is still under god's sovereignty so it's like even if it's okay this is a this is a zero and this is a hundred so these are worlds of perfection and imperfection but both of them at the end of the day are under god's kingdom right so i think we we can agree that uh, maybe a perfect realm exists but it's not as distinctly parallel as plato would like it to be it's more like you know you know i think the yin yang is actual very good analogy the yin yang's uh, visualization of how good and bad is mixed and twisted within this world right and so right. there's good and bad and there's bad and good but at the end of the day it's it's all just one realm but i think that segues into the, the the next topic about morality would you then say that uh so when we talk about one one entire kingdom that has both good and bad and then no separate kingdom of per- pure perfection would you then say that this world is a world where justice cannot be attained because that's one important question in divinity right it's like okay yeah. is this world where we can work towards justice or is mm-hmm. this world where we just raise our hands and wait for god's heaven and that's where real justice will be attained what would you say your take on that is um okay that's a very good question because of course like that's something saint augustine himself in city of god that maybe was the, the fundamental question um can we is the city of god here or are we in the city of men and he says we're in the city of men and so obviously we are um and but what i would want to say maybe i'm not sure if i agree with you um specifically when you say that the kingdom of god contains evil because i would say that the kingdom of god is absolutely good but evil exists not in the kingdom but as the turn of the will the free will away from the kingdom so it only exists in so far as you reject it so it doesn't have a substance as its own so that would be one problem i would say with at least a naive understanding of yin and yang because then you have evil as a substantial property i don't want to understand evil as substantial i want to understand evil more so as a almost like a fiction almost like a fantasy that humans really um that human beings create and they um when they create these fantasies they stick to them and they believe in them so like would you say you believe- would you would you say that the ideology of light and darkness just being the absence of light fits this idea yes just being the absence of light right so darkness right. does exist in a way but it doesn't exist objectively because all objective being is in god so it only exists subjectively that's why we say hell is a state of mind all depictions of hell as uh the violence of being cut apart and stuff this is all symbolic this is all depictions of what is actually a spiritual reality and it's the reality of a soul which is accepted sin and held to sin despite sin having no power to give life so instead of of accepting god you accept sin so um now i would say that um uh sorry could you remind me of your original question yeah so uh, we we just wanted to talk about would you say that like you mentioned that you believe that even though truth and evil both do mm. not exist in the kingdom of the world and you said well i believe that truth is the only thing that exists and evil is just sort of a transgression of it but i think yeah. would it still not be under existence of like maybe it's a transgression of truth so i think that's something mm. i firmly believe because uh, i was trying to devise a truth domain something that we in which mm. we can understand what truth is and how falsehood is even created so we understand right. and i think this is where you're coming from when you say that you do not want ex- evil to be something substantial you know it's like mm-hmm. okay god mm-hmm. created evil is a pro- problematic idea because that right. it's not a perfectly and absolute god that could make sense from that idea from that p- point of view but at the end of the day even if god created men and those men transgressed to create mm-hmm. falsehood or for example the concept of luciferian satan satan of being what would you say your take is on that would you say those are also just uh, well symbolic? here's here's a, no no what i would say is that so here's sort of a thought experiment to try and get at how the christian way of understanding a deprivation of good would be try and think someone who is doing an action but only for evil you would have to say what is evil what are they exactly doing Well, we can say so let's think of the most heinous thing you could do. You murder a child. 
you, why are you doing this? Well, maybe it gives you pleasure in some way. So obviously the pleasure that you're seeking after you, you're getting, trying to get pleasure in a twisted, heinous, terrible way. But at the same time, you're searching after something that's fundamentally good because our God is a God of infinite pleasures. So what I would say is that you can, you can do an action with evil intentions, which is intentions that um, seek to annihilate and they seek to destroy. But insofar as you are acting, you're always acting as a being. So as a part of God, right? But um, in, it's, 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 it's more so that you are, the, it's, so I would hold to a free will idea. So when you're talking about sort of God creating men and then men do evil, I think free will genuinely does exist. Like I'm not a Calvinist for example, a Protestant uh, who would say that God is sovereign over everything and he's the ultimate cause of even evil. I would say, no, God is not the cause of any evil acts. God is more so um, the being who gives freedom and gives you the life to operate and act freely and act, act goodly, but you can also choose evil, which is more so an abyss into your own self, into a nihilistic abyss of your own sinful spirit. Now, I, I completely agree with that idea and understand where you're exactly coming from. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and this can be applied to Luciferian Saturn. This can be applied to men that God created you. Now it's up to you how how much you mold and, you know, transgress against uh, truth. Right. And the more you transgress against truth, the more you, you know, create falsehood. But I think right. that brings us to the problem of will, which is like, okay, I, I gave birth to a child. I didn't give birth to an evil child. I gave birth to a neutral child or I, and I tried it to be good, right? But if that child grows up to be evil, then, you know, it's his own free will. I didn't, I didn't make him evil. He became evil on his own. So from that perspective, that idea makes sense. But then does it not introduce the problem of will, which is uh, that if, if God does not will, we understand that God does not control everything like string by string, atom by atom. Okay, that, that is an idea we can, you know, grasp our heads around. But at the same time, God sees that, okay, evil is being committed. So I'm mm -hmm. not saying God is allowing, allowing it, but I'm saying that God allows it to exist in his kingdom. Does that not guarantee the existence of evil itself? Um. Yeah, that's the thing. I'm just not sure if I can accept those terms as he allows it to exist in its kingdom. I think he allows people to walk away from the kingdom, but in a sense, you're you're always already within the kingdom, but you can so imagine so here's a good metaphor, I think, your or analogy. You're in the the kingdom, right? But what mm -hmm. if you close your eyes? Mm -hmm. So you're still in the kingdom, right? But you don't experience it like that. So I think in a way, all evil consists of sort of this closing its eyes. It's turning away from light and in this way becoming dark. But I don't think this means that. So in the kingdom itself, you could be. So this person could be fully light, but in their interior chamber of their mind, the way they experience this glory, it's it's as it's as pain. So that would be a state of like a hellish state, mm -hmm. a state of damnation. So for me, that's how I would understand it. It's not necessarily that God allows evil to exist in his kingdom, but he allows people to close his eyes to his glory and exist in their own, in their own fantasy. In their it's own, like, okay. Yeah. So it's like, okay, I give you this perfectly beautiful thing. You know, it could be mm -hmm. a toy or a candy, but now it's up to you if you want to make it dirty, if you want to tear the arms and limbs off the teddy bear. I'm not going to yeah. stop you, but at the end of the day, you cannot tell me that I created this monster of a teddy bear. It's the, you, mm -hmm. the one who ripped it apart, right? But I gave mm -hmm. you free will. And, and I'm honestly, I mean, you might have noticed that I do not have a firm view on this yet. So I'm still just cross-running yeah. ideas about this because this is a very complicated topic, obviously. But I think uh, if, if sure. you back to Nietzsche if we try to connect it back to the death of God because so how how would you compare these two ideas that okay there was a God he was not the first cause he was the causer of the first cause I think that's something that all Abrahamic religions can agree with right he's outside the framework of existence he's not being mm -hmm. uh, influenced by existence as other matter is right yep. so he's outside the framework of existence he's the causer of the first cause he creates he lets the universe be created right he creates the universe or lets it be created and now humanity is left 
on its own. So God is not directly influencing it. God is not directly controlling. Would you say that a that a positive version of Nietzsche, a more a more uh, believing version of Nietzsche, would say that this is the death of God? Because essentially, even if he's alive, he's not, you know, really interfering in our day to day matters. So how would you compare this idea of God being outside the framework of existence and God being dead according to Nietzsche? Would you say they're the same sides of two, of the same coin, two sides, or is it different? Um, that's a good question. That's a very interesting question. So I would say that if we have that idea of God completely out of creation, because I don't I don't believe that God is completely out of creation. I think he's influencing and his will ultimately will be done because i think ever since the creation the goal has been the unification of god and creation but in order for that to occur creation must be in an ontological state where it's capable of communing or being in a relationship with something as perfect as god so i think that in um so as you were saying i think in the death of god for nietzsche um there is a radical freedom that we're left with and um th but there is no um final objective moment where we meet god or we have to be judged in the christian terminology it's it's judgment and judgment doesn't have to do with you're in some courts and then god arbitrarily pronounces you good or evil it's um it's judgment is what the state of you confronting god so when you come face to face with god you are naturally judged just by what god is and what you are um and if you're judged um to be in sin, for example, if you're judged um, wrongly or poorly, it means you ontologically are not um, in a state capable of being in with God. So I think that, yes, we do have freedom. And we could say that in a sense, you could live as if with your freedom, you could live as if uh, the death of God has happened. And you could do it um, when you're next to Jesus Christ. I think that's what Judas did. Judith, um, Judas knew Christ. He knew God in the flesh, and yet he sold him for um, whatever amount of money he did. Nothing was, was worth, worth it, obviously, and then he didn't repent. So I think that even if you know God, because of the free will, you can live as if God were dead, but that doesn't make it true. But I think for Nietzsche, he'll say that, the God, that God is dead, and this is true. God is dead, and there are no consequences of your freedom. You're completely responsible for yourself. But we would say that um, you have freedom, but God isn't dead. And one day you will be judged and you can hold on to your freedom. But that's not going to be a state um, that you're going to. Um, it's not going to be a state that you're going to enjoy, essentially. So uh, so if I got this right, the main difference between Nietzsche's death of God and the divine idea of God's. OK, first of all, I think I agree that God does not exclusively not interfere with the world it's not like you know you're on your own completely but i think that's yeah. a good analogy to to understand how the creation can work in a much more metaphysical understanding of the world because i think from a very uh from a very orthodox understanding orthodox in general uh, orthodox yeah. divine understanding uh it almost all abrahamic religions have interpreted it to be like you know there's this um now I'm not I'm not sure about the orthodox idea the Christian orthodox idea about God's anthropomorphism if if they believe in an anthropomorphic God or not because that's something that varies amongst sects of Christianity but the Islamic idea is that okay God is not an anthropomorphic being with hands and limbs and that's what that's one thing that differentiates the existence of the universe from being let existing and God creating it you know like placing planets hand by hand that's something yeah. that we say is not exactly the case you know things have their own what you would call science nowadays like their own way of actually working but it's god at the back end so i think in that way i understand that okay god does not really exclusively not interfere but i think the main piece of the puzzle that's missing here is that that's prophets and scriptures so god the the, the direct way that god interferes and sort of interacts with humanity is that he sends his saints his messengers and his mm -hmm. scriptures mm -hmm. so i think the scripture is the only portal towards god for mm -hmm. humanity would you would you agree on that or because what nietzsche does and one of the reasons he says that okay after he says okay god is dead now we are on his own that is his main message that now we are on mm -hmm. his own we have to create our own morality we have to create our own uh, meaning of life so that is essentially right. a denial that, okay, a divine scripture exists. 
So right. how would you relate these things? Well, what I would say firstly is that um, I agree that scripture is divinely inspired and it is God communicating with creation. But I would say that the Christian idea based on the incarnation of God, the incarnation of Jesus, is that God united himself with man, not merely in the spoken word, not merely in scripture, but in flesh. That's why we say the word became flesh. So scripture, the word, um, the word of God, it became uh, flesh. It became a human. So now that we have that, we have an ontological unity between God and man um, in the person of Jesus. And he brings everyone into the um, into his body. And that's why we have the sacrament of the Eucharist, communion. We believe that communion is literally the body and blood of Christ. We are consuming in a mysterious way the sacrament of our, our God. So we literally have God within us. So what I would say is that but then, God remains. But then that does that not uh, sort of devalue the, the, the written scripture? If you say that the scripture became the flesh, so is the scripture still holy? The scripture as in the written word of Bible? Absolutely. Yeah, the scripture is still like we have a saint named St. Maximus the Confessor. He's actually very influenced by Aristotle. Um, I'm sure um, he'd probably be interesting to, to most people. Um, he talks about how there are three different incarnations of God. Um, one in creation, he expresses himself in, in creation. So we can say it's sort of an incarnation of God. Then in scripture. And then, in, but in the highest form is in, in, in the incarnation of God, uh, of Jesus himself. Because even though scripture is the word of God, it's not yet the unity of man and God. And in, insofar as man is the head of creation, God placed Adam and Eve as in charge of the garden. Um, man, when God unites himself with man, he unites himself with the whole cosmos. So the incarnation for us was a cosmic event where God himself entered into creation so what we would say is that um um what nietzsche essentially um he does is he gets rid of god entirely and that's just a problem for us the problem really is that um you have freedom we have freedom christians affirm freedom but ultimately true freedom for us is becoming united with god only because this is the only only thing that's objectively real everything else is false everything is delusion everything else is fantasy so um yeah that would be the christian critique of nietzsche well, well, another thing that I'm, I'm intrigued with is that when, when you talk about this idea the the almost the entire idea of christian divinity about revolves around acceptance and and you know more of like a belief area that okay this is the fundamental beliefs that you should have in order mm -hmm for whether you uh, say salvation or for you to be, you know, be, be judged good in the sight of God, right? So that's that's the belief part. But I think what's uh, what really intrigues me is that, okay, one, Nietzsche, Nietzsche's problem was there is no morality, right? One of the greatest problems of sociological world is that, okay, what are the rules that humanity lives by? So what, what do you take, the Christian take is on that, that even, if, okay, is belief enough? Or are there set of rules and moralities that right. society must impose right. in order to be successful? Right. So what you're essentially talking about is the disagreement between Protestants and Catholics and Orthodox between faith and works. So mm -hmm. is it just the beliefs themselves of faith? Well, what I would say is that it's through faith that you cultivate works, which are an expression of love. So in the Christian formula that Paul gives, St. Paul, and um, it's echoed by numerous saints, is um, faith, hope, and love. In faith, you believe in God. So you have that dogmatic aspect where um, you accept that your own reason is, is fallen, it's imperfect, it's you're going to, you face contradictions, but um, you accept with faith that there is a truth out there that you can accept only if you open yourself up to it. And that tr truth will, and then you have the hope that that truth will um fulfill its promise that God will um, do what he promised to do. And then you have love once you have pure, when you have true knowledge of God, where it's not only that you hope that God will do what he um, promises, it's you know, you know he does because you, and in this knowledge, you love him. So um, the Christian way of understanding it is that um, the relationship between faith and works or between belief, as you say, and then the law is that you faith is always in a sense 
a work. Faith is always and faith is always the act of doing the faith. And it's through this act that you slowly climb what in the East is called the ladder of divine ascent. And you slowly enter more and more into God as you you allow him into you. So it's a process of rena renouncing yourself, giving yourself up. The, the um, specific term is kenosis. You give yourself up and then upon giving yourself up, you so, for example, in the moment of faith, you give up your reason and you say, God, reveal yourself. I believe in you. And then through this um, original self-renunciation, you received it back. And then this is your true being. You mentioned that this is one of the fundamental differences between, I believe, Protestant and Orthodox Christian sects. Mm -hmm. Can you brief on that? Like, can you mm -hmm. highlight which sect believes exactly that? So what Protestants generally believe um, there may be some that disagree with this, but they believe in external justification, um, the external imputation. So they believe that the, the, okay, this is essentially what they believed. The father in heaven was angry at the world for its sin. The father, because the father is just and he is, um, um, he hates evil, he needed to punish evil. So he could have destroyed the whole world, but instead he punished Christ who stood in, in sort of as a scapegoat he stood in place of everyone else that's what protestants believe so instead of god condemning you to hell for your sin god condemns christ to death and to hell and he um unleashes his wrath on his son but his son of course can never die and enters back into the relationship of the trinity um now the orthodox view is not that god simply pronounces you correct and then um 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 sort of attacks the son with his wrath it's that the son um the son um instead of the son um uh meeting the god's criteria of justice in terms of his wrath the son met the god's criteria of justice in terms of love so this the problem with creation was that man wasn't loving god um proportionately enough man was loving himself and in loving himself he turned away from god so he turned away from being but christ he died and nonetheless he had absolute faith in his father absolute love in his father he never um he never separated from his father so he died yet um separate he died while in communion in relationship with his father so he conquered death by death that's a christian phrase um, so just to wrap the point up, um, I think the Christian way of the Orthodox way of understanding it is that you participate in the um, life of God himself. You you have the experience of God, like in the sacrament of the Eucharist, God becomes internal to you and there's an internal spiritual transformation. And this is how you enter heaven. It's a process. But for Protestants, it's a moment where God snaps his fingers and says, OK, I pronounce you just and I pronounce you uh, condemned. So when you talk about this uh, essential judgment of God, I think that's what I'm most interested in. What is this judgment based on in the Christian ideology? Is it that, okay, there is this set of laws. There is this, you know, like the Jude Jews have the commandments, right? Okay, this is a list of laws that you must abide by. And we know that the Bible is filled with laws. Both the Old and the New Testaments have their fair share of laws, right? You can you can argue which one is more strict, which one is more lenient, but it's there. The laws are there. So I think the reason I want to focus on the laws is because that is the main Nietzschean idea that is, is morality even required or we can just create our own morality on the go. Mm. So mm. what would you say the Christian idea is? That is... Is there a certain set of laws that the society must abide by and only mm -hmm. then will God pronounce them, you know, uh, good if they abide by the law? Or is it enough to just believe and not basically do any work and right. it still sounds good? No, I think because you need to abide by the law and you need to act in a God-like way. That's essentially what the law is. The law is a revelation of God. You need to act in a God-like way uh, because... Um, you need to transform yourself into an ontological state where you're compatible with life in God. Because if you're in a state of corruption, you cannot enter into the life of God simply by the nature of the case. Um, so I would say that the Christian idea is that you do need a law, especially when sin exists still, especially when we still have um, uh, of imper an imperfect world. You need a written law because the law is what provides the order, it provides the right path. But in a sense, you overcome the law 
through spiritual transformation because you no longer need these guidelines because you're directly you you have a direct relationship with God Himself. So um, that's essentially the point of the. I think we uh, have Christian that idea path. in. I think we have that idea in Islamic divinity also, but you know, essentially nobody's above the law. That, that's you know the the fundamental idea. But yeah, there are occurrences where it might seem apparent that some saint or prophet is is not abiding by the law, but you know they have their own arrangement with God. But essentially, nobody is above the law, and I think. Uh, that's the reason that the the fundamental idea is much more strict as in terms of laws that okay this is a list of laws if you do not abide by them uh so this is one uh, explanation that okay you will not enter heaven that's like one of the most basic explanations yeah. but we believe there's much more processes going on in between one of the biggest one of them is that uh, these laws of god essentially are tools for the society to be uh, stable and you know conduct themselves in the best manner right so we believe that these laws these sets of morality the fundamental morality they if, if they're not erect if they are not uh, practiced in the society then it is very difficult for a society to sustain and I think we have seen examples uh, throughout the scriptures throughout the history where a society transgressed the laws of God and then they were you know sent to ruins so I think uh, if you if you try to connected back to Nietzschean idea where Nietzschean talks about that when God is dead, you don't need morality. You can just create your own meaning. What is the, the I think the main question is, what is the guarantee that that meaning is actually going to provide us with laws that will help our society sustain? What if those, you know, we try out and mm -hmm. we see how most in the West, the, the liberal ideas that are causing damage to the Western society, that is very evident. So would you say that is one of the reasons that uh, religious morality needs to remain strictly fundamental and right. that creating your own morality on the go will cause uh, problems and ruin the society? Right. Uh, that's a very good question. I think it's a very fitting question to end off on because I do need to be going to bed soon. So, yeah. But I will answer that question. It's a very interesting question. Um, I'll say that um, for for. I would agree that you do, in a sense, need to stick to that fundamental, the, the laws. You need to stick with the laws that have been objectively given. And the reason why is because um, when you create your own laws, in a way, they're not even laws because they're created by yourself. So the standard is yourself. So if you break the law, what happens? Nothing. But if you break God's law, we know objectively there is always a result there you never get away with doing something bad because badness is always a turn from being to non-being that's how we understand it right so you're turning away from goodness to evil and that will always have a detrimental effect in some way but the problem with nietzsche is that you can you can abandon your whole law and you can go back to being a um a christian if you wanted to uh, but why not? You you could do that. So I think with Nietzsche, the problem is that um, laws almost become relative, where you just choose them on command. And I I think that this idea of choosing and picking your own freedom this is inevitably inevitably leads us to stuff to a hedonistic, consumeristic, and not ultimately a nihilistic Western society, as you described. All right, I think I agree with that, and I think that's one of the main reasons we need to not only read but criticize. Nietzsche's idea of death of God yeah. because it it calls upon for such a dynamically fluid idea of laws that like you said I think you put it really well that they are not laws anymore and I think that's right. one of the main reasons uh, that I wanted to discuss this especially with you because we, like I said earlier philosophy and religion have been segregated for so while that the the value of fundamental laws has been almost you know uh, ignored. So I think that yeah. was that was a really interesting insight and I believe even though Nietzsche is not something you can just completely go through in one sitting, but I think we, we went a, a bit random, we bent a little bit uh, here and there, but I think yeah. we did have a very fruitful and productive conversation. I did learn a lot about Christian divinity and I hope I was able to share some aspects and insights uh, from myself to you. And I think with that, Ray, uh, if you have any other remarks, any other comments? 
Well, I'd just like to say, yeah, I thought it was a great discussion. And I just think the best discussions are the ones that really don't follow a formula. You just see where it goes. And I think the best insights come out that way, right? So yeah, I'll just say to anyone watching, if they're interested, um, my channel is Telos Bound. You uh, have a bunch of videos on there. So you, if you'd uh, like to check them out, I have a Patreon. I make almost daily videos right now uh, for patrons. So if you're interested in that, it's about $5 a month. Um, so yeah, thanks for having me on again, Salman. I had a great time. All right, great. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, I think this uh, clip will be available both on my podcast and some of it will be on your channel. So if somebody's mm -hmm. listening from your channel, come over to ST Officials if you're interested in philosophy. And I hope we can continue our journey of uh, philosophy and knowledge. With that, uh, have a good day or night, depending on when you're watching this. And uh, I'll see you in the next one. All right, thank you for coming, Trey. See you soon. Thank you.